Even though it's it's usually just a small group, I think we're really enjoying it. Usually, you know, I have the PowerPoint and stuff every time, and uh, it's just just a wonderful time we're having together. So, even so, tonight I'm going to be showing a PowerPoint again. And you know, when Mike asks me to fill in, I think, okay, so I need to take one subject, and I want it to be edifying for the group that is gathered. You know, whether if it's 45 minutes or an hour, however long it is, and so. We're going to look at his parenting in the path to marriage. We had a family conference here. I don't know if it was about a year, year and a half ago, and I was asked to speak on this subject, so I did that. And I made some changes to this. I took some out and added some in just for some emphasis on certain issues. And lately I've been getting questions, not in our church but outside the church, about some of these issues. And so I thought, well, if we do this tonight, I think it'll be edifying and interesting for uh, the church that's gathered here tonight. And then also it'll be on the website. It'll be on Sermon Audio. And so uh, because of that, with the better quality videos, others can see that and check that out. But anyway, we're going to start, and I'm going to have uh, different buttons and stuff here that I'm pressing, but I think that it should, uh, it should probably go well. So let's just begin with this parenting in the path to marriage. Now, uh, if you're here and you're older, I'm sure that uh, when you were younger, uh, the process by which you saw young people getting married in the culture itself is probably a little bit different than it is today. And, of course, you probably know stories from your grandparents or your great-grandparents, maybe as far as how they got married, and no doubt that was a lot different than now. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting the way that people do things in a, in a secular age. For example, I was just talking with someone about this the other day, how isn't it so strange that in the world, people that are not married will live in immorality with multiple, multiple partners. And then when they are officially dating, if they are with multiple partners, it's considered a bad thing because you are officially dating, you're, you're going out. And so because of that, you are being unfaithful to someone. But biblically, we stop and look at that, we have to think, well, is that really the case? I mean, if you're already being immoral with multiple people, uh, where do we find in Scripture that you all of a sudden enter this agreement with somebody where you're, quote-unquote, going out or dating, and then, then it's wrong to be immoral with multiple people? You know, just, just these whole ways of thinking that are in the culture, we don't see them anywhere in, in Scripture. And as time goes on, I think that a lot of people are becoming more and more epistemologically self-conscious to their worldview. In other words, when we think of why do we think the way we do, how do we know the things that we do, secular humanists are becoming a lot more consistent with their lifestyle. I mean, if we are all just the products of mere chance and an evolutionary process, uh, the pleasures of what we would call as Christian sin must be the greatest good, because if this is all that we have is this life, why aren't these pleasures just the, the greatest thing? Whereas if we are Christians, we are now put in a position where we have to more and more examine ourselves and ask, why do we do what we do? Why do we think the way we do? Is it because of what the scripture says, or is it because we've been influenced by things outside of scripture? And so even when it comes to this subject, you know, I can tell you, I've, I've seen so many different scenarios in different cultures myself. I've seen in different fellowships of Christians, people who do dating and courtship and some who do Christian dating and some who do betrothal and just so many different things. And so it causes you to have to ask yourself, really, what does scripture say? So anyway, parenting in the path to marriage, very important subject. The Bible reveals to us God's word concerning marriage. In fact, from the beginning of scripture all throughout, we see God's word concerning marriage. You remember, obviously, the first marriage, Adam and Eve, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, we read, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And then in verses 24 and 25, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There you have the first marriage in Scripture, right in Genesis chapter 2. 
you go to the end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 19, we read, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. That's marriage between Christ and the church. The marriage between Adam and Eve at the beginning was a picture of this that we see at the end, the marriage between Christ and his church. Also, Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible, we read, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so there you have the New Jerusalem and God and the marriage there. So again, from beginning to end in Scripture, we see marriage. Now, what is marriage? I think if you ask most people, what is marriage? Most people, even Christians, really wouldn't be able to give you a definition. I mean, it's just something we've grown up seeing. We don't really think much about it. If you grew up influenced by secular humanism, like many of us maybe do, we see it as, you know, when you're dating, you, you know, you're supposed to be faithful to that person, and then marriage is kind of the next step. Now you really are supposed to be faithful to that person. We really don't know what it is. Well, biblically, marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman to be each other's companions for life. And scripture refers to marriage as a covenant. Malachi 2.16 speaks of the wife of thy youth, says she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. So it's a promise of companionship. Then in Proverbs 2.17, speaking of the unfaithful woman, it says she forgetteth the covenant of her God. So you see there again, marriage is a covenant. Now we have to ask, though, what are the purposes of marriage? There are many. In scripture, but of course, the most basic of them all, the glory of God. First Corinthians 10 31 tells us whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. So the primary purpose of marriage is to glorify God. But then also, let me see here if my mouse is, oh, there we go. A little slow. The relationship between Christ and the church is pictured in marriage. You see that in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. It's not that Christ and the church is a picture of our marriages. No, our marriages are a picture of Christ and the church. And so the question we have to always ask ourselves, how well are they picturing Christ and the church? And that's where we must be faithful in what, is God, what God has ordained for us concerning that. Then, another reason. You have to excuse me. It looks like the system is a little slow as I'm clicking through the slides. Mutual companionship. We read in Genesis 2, 18 through 20, that God saw that the man was alone. So what did he need? He needed a helper, a helper that would be suitable for him. And what did God do then? He made out of the man a woman to be that companion that he needed. There we go. Third purpose Offspring, or I should say fourth purpose, offspring. Genesis one twenty eight. what was the first commandment God gave to the man and the woman? It was to be fruitful and to multiply. Malachi 2.15 tells us that one of the purposes of marriage of God bringing two of his people together is to have godly offspring. That is the goal of believers. You can see that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. So the glory of God, picturing Christ in the church, mutual companionship, offspring and for christians obviously godly offspring now when we speak though of the path to marriage we're talking about the process in which someone moves from one state that is the state of singleness into the covenant of marriage so what does scripture say about this well i mentioned already dating now there's many different forms of this and obviously there is christian dating as well and really what happened around late 1800s, early 1900s, in our culture, as you had more and more a shift from a biblical way of thinking into a secular way of thinking, the involvement of parents in the marriages of their children became less and less. The authority of the father in the marriages of his children became less and less. It became a lot more independent where the young people were just to go find a spouse on their own, and we know what it's become since then in our own culture and in our own time. But there is a Christian version of this where basically Christians want to date 
you know, see if they're compatible with certain people. Usually they go through a few different individuals until they finally find the one, and then they end up marrying that person, but basically no parental involvement. Then there's courtship. This is uh, older practice, but it's been a response in many churches to dating, and this seeks to involve the parents more, especially the father. So basically, it places responsibility on a young man to approach the father of a woman and ask if he can enter this time with the daughter to see if they would maybe marry. Uh, typically, really stricter courtships, the two young people can't be anywhere without a chaperone there too. Ones that are a bit more loose, maybe they can go anywhere together, almost a little bit more like a Christian dating, but still, if they want to marry the girl, again, they got to come back to the father and ask the permission. So that's courtship. There are many books that have been written concerning this. If you remember in the 1990s, there was this book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And uh, then uh, he wrote one on courtship as well boy meets girl and again sorry the system is a little slow but these were very influential books and joshua harris since then is no longer even a professing christian but nevertheless these books had a lot of influence another one her hand in marriage by douglas wilson biblical courtship in the modern world and then what he must be if he wants to marry my daughter by vody bauckham and so these have been very very influential books and so a lot of the thinking of, of a lot of Christians and churches that they have are because of books such as these. Okay, then we also have betrothal. And again, this, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes, but this seeks to have the parents involved, yes, but the process is much different than courtship. And I'll, I'll talk about this one a little bit more at the end. Just a couple books. It's a friend of mine. What are you doing? A conversation about dating and courtship about betrothal, and then the covenant of betrothal as well he has written. This is a smaller movement in our time, but nevertheless, it's slightly growing. So I want to say some clarifications, though, before I go on. Number one, we recognize that we live in a fallen and sinful world, and many people live very sinful lifestyles before the, they married the person that they did. Maybe, they, maybe the married couple lived sinfully prior to becoming Christians, but God can still heal that relationship and give them a godly, faithful marriage. There are always different circumstances and different situations. So not every situation is going to look exactly the same. We even see that in Scripture when someone moves out of singleness into marriage. I'm not up here tonight advocating a fail-proof method. Marriages will fail and there will be divorces, whether someone was dating, courting, or betrothal, uh, because of the sinful hearts of people. Uh, now, there can be certain things that you do that keep you from bearing bad fruit that you can bring into the marriage, Absolutely, but there's not a fail-proof method. And finally, different people marry at different ages, and that's important because I'm going to talk about marriage and the youth in a little bit, but nevertheless, it's not God's will that everyone marry at a young age. God has different plans for different people. Now, Scripture also speaks about the gift of singleness. 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, For I would that all men were even as I myself, Paul writes, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. Then also 1 Corinthians 7, 8, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. There are many benefits to the single life. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and 33, listen to this. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 34 and 35. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. In this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. So again, just a clarification. There are blessings to the single life, and God gives that gift to certain people. There are also times of great difficulty and special callings and service in the church. And again, the system is running a little slow tonight, but I'm waiting for different pictures to pop up. There are times of persecution. 
And during times of persecution, it's wise for believers maybe to hold off on marriage because of great suffering. There are special callings and service in the church to the mission field. And this has been the case oftentimes throughout church history where believers remain single in those circumstances. So that we always need to keep in mind. Nevertheless, there are some problems that we should be honest and recognize and this leads us to the fifth purpose of marriage. And again, I'm going to get a little ahead of the computer. It's a little bit slow. The fifth purpose of marriage is this. Because of the fall, marriage now serves as a means to protect from fornication. And we have failed to consider the great importance of this biblical truth in our time. Now, Oftentimes, many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph, how he was faithful and how he fled from Potiphar's wife, even when he was uh, falsely accused. But he didn't remain single his whole life. He married Asnath, later we read in Genesis 41, 45. He gave him to wife Asnath. So there's an example of a faithful man who remained pure, but of course, later he married. Listen here to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Now concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So you see there a purpose for marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That is, burn with passion. So again, we see there the scriptural command. Now, let me give you some history here. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, in six, written in 1689, says this, and the quote should pop up there in just a moment, but I'll read it for you. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and the preventing of uncleanness. So those Baptist forefathers, they're just affirming what Scripture says. Let me read to you from Calvin, who wrote this. Since it, referring to virginity, is denied to some and to others granted only for a season, those who are assailed by incontinence and unable successfully to war against it should retake themselves to the remedy of marriage and thus cultivate chastity in the way of their calling. So Calvin, again, just affirming what we're saying. Then he also wrote this. Those incapable of self-restraint if they apply not to the remedy allowed and provided for in temperance, war with God and resist his ordinance. And let no man tell me, as many in the present day do, that he can do all things God helping. The help of God is present with those only who walk in his ways, that is, in his calling, for which all who withdraw themselves, omitting the remedies provided by God, vainly and presumptuously strive and struggle with and surmount their natural feelings. You get what he's saying. If you have these feelings, you need to get married, and you shouldn't wait. Matthew Poole, who was the well-known Puritan commentator from the 1600s, wrote this. The apostle doth therefore determine that in this case, it was every man's duty to marry, and every woman's likewise. The reason of which must be because God had ordained marriage as a means to bridle men and restrain them from extravagant lusts. We see this problem today with men, you know, being enslaved to the electronic device with a lot of things. But obviously that's a problem. And sadly, a lot of men whose hearts aren't right, they bring that into the marriage and it causes a lot of marital problems. We also got to understand that if young men do want to get married and year after year after year after year after year after year, they can't. We shouldn't be surprised to see these problems in our churches if we have men in their upper 20s and into their 30s who still aren't married that the church has to deal with these issues when those things are out in front of them. Not justifying the sin, but I'm saying a lot of times churches have ignored the counsel of Scripture and of our forefathers. So problem, oftentimes we're not letting them marry. Why? There's many different reasons. Number one, the million qualifications. Oftentimes they have to meet qualifications in a book about this thick. Well, <laughs> Some have fewer qualifications, some have more. Depends on the situation. Some have even more qualifications. Sorry, the pictures are going a little slow. 
And finally, some are really committed and they have many qualifications. I run into this a lot where young men simply can't get married because they never meet the high standard that many times only a 50-year-old man who's well-established financially, who's been walking with the Lord for decades could meet. But nevertheless, that's the case. Another reason, overly concerned about money. While money is important, obviously, a man needs to support his family. At times, he's expected to earn a certain amount of income that's just almost undoable for a 19- or 20-year-old young man. Another reason, waiting for the perfect one in a problem-free marriage. That is, these two should only marry if it seems like they're never going to have any problems. So that's another reason. But there are problems. Obviously, there are basic doctrinal standards that we would expect to, if we want to see a young person, say, in our family, marry somebody else, right? The fundamentals of the faith. Maybe there are some other doctrines there that you can think of, maybe uh, right view concerning baptism or right view concerning certain theological truths. Also, we would say that there needs to be an understanding of what a biblical marriage is, right? I mean, someone probably doesn't want their daughter marrying a young man who it's very clear he doesn't even have a biblical belief about what his role is. Or someone doesn't want their son marrying a young lady who maybe is an in-the-closet feminist and she's coming out or something like that. You get what I'm saying? So there has to be these basic standards there. Everybody has some preferences and some standards. But think about this. Agreeing on everything is extremely rare. Number two, work ethic is more vital than current income. That is, if you see a young man who's determined and he has a good work ethic and he has a basic plan, that he, for concerning raising a family and supporting them, that's more important than his current income. We can't expect him to be making more than he's capable of at his young age. Also, preparing for a difficult marriage, in some cases, is more practical than waiting for the perfect situation, which does not exist anyway. In other words, if you raise your children just to be in the perfect marriage, they're going to have a shock after they get married because it's just not there. If you prepare them for difficult situations... They can already be prepared to deal with maybe some of the smaller issues that have to deal with in marriage itself. Now, problem number two, forgetting the Bible's teaching concerning marriage in one's youth. This is important, and let me just show you some verses. Proverbs 2.17 speaks of the companion of her youth. Malachi 2.14 speaks of the wife of your youth. Proverbs 5.18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And finally, Psalm 127, verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I have youth there underlined. It's a basic understanding in Scripture. Usually, people marry in their youth. I'm sure many of you here can think of your grandparents or your great-grandparents if you know their history. How old were they when they got married? Probably a lot younger than a lot of people do now, right? So... People are getting married, on average, at a much, much later age than they used to, even in churches, oftentimes. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.36 says, But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncommonly toward his virgin, that's his virgin daughter, if she pass the flower of her age and needs so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Now, I'm not getting off track here, but we have today in our culture, a lot of people who we call revisionists, they are basically heretics who try to say that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, it does not condemn same-sex marriage, they would say, and they have all kinds of false arguments that they try to use to promote that. Well, we have people who are promoting pedophilia who are using the exact same arguments. And if things continue to go the way they do, it won't be long until you have people who are saying it's okay to be a Christian and to be attracted to minors. Well, here's a verse that completely disproves that notion. She has to be past the flower of her age to marry. That is, to marry, you have to be an adult, plain and simple. Now, think about this for a moment. I'm not up here now, and I don't want anyone who sees the video to take me out of context. I'm not promoting a certain age at which people should get married. Um, but what's interesting is, in a lot of cultures that have not been so influenced by secularism, when they're young adults, they are getting married and they're having families. In the United States, at those exact same ages, almost all the secular kids are fornicating. 
So the secular kids are fornicating, or secular kids, secular young adults, we call them kids, but they're actually young adults. They're fornicating, and in other cultures, they're getting married. In this context, it's very important to teach, or as we raise up the young people, to not expect them to be single year after year after year after year after year after year, because most people weren't built for that. Concerning this verse, listen to the great Baptist commentator, John Gill. He says that past the flower of age means this. That is, one that has arrived to years of maturity is ripe for marriage, and in quoting Jewish authorities concerning the subject, he wrote, who according to them was one of 12 years and a half old at which age virgins were judged fit to marry. That's when the Jews a lot of times married off. Now, even there's a lot of arguments that Mary was 14, 15, and so forth. Now, in cultures like that, the, the age that most people died was a lot younger than now. So people got going early. And at the same time, uh, it was a whole different cultural setup. In a lot of cultures, though, people do age slower. People do become adults a little bit later. So that has to be taken into consideration as well. But it's interesting understanding of what Paul had actually written there. Calvin wrote this concerning that verse. By the flower of her age, he means the marriageable age the lawyers define to be from 12 to 20 years of age. He, looking back to Jewish authorities, Gill and Calvin are in agreement. And then Martin Luther. We're coming up on October 30th, 31st, right? The history there. Luther, a young man should marry at the age of 20 at the latest, a young woman at 15 to 18. Now, again, a little bit of a different culture, a little bit of a different time. But think of the wisdom here. In their culture, they were marrying. In other cultures, they're marrying. In the United States, what are the, most of the young adults doing at this age? They're not living in purity, I can guarantee you that. They're fornicating. So what are our Christian families to do? Well, we should think... If young people want to marry, and they're 20, they're 21, they're 22, they're 23, they're 24, it's just not happening. That's, it's not a healthy situation when they're not getting married later, later, later when they want to. So something to consider. Calvin wrote this. The Lord prohibits fornication. Therefore, he requires purity and chastity. The only method which each has of preserving it is to measure himself by his capacity. Let no man rashly despise matrimony as a thing useless or superfluous to him. Let no man long for celibacy unless he is able to dispense with the married state. If he has not the power of subduing his passion, let him understand that the Lord has made it obligatory on him to marry. The incontinent, therefore, neglecting to cure their infirmity by this means, sin by the very circumstance of disobeying the apostle's command. And let not a man flatter himself that because he abstains from the outward act, he cannot be accused of unchastity. His mind may be the means, or his mind may in the meantime be inwardly inflamed with lust. For Paul's definition of chastity is purity of mind combined with purity of body. Therefore, when he gives a reason for the former precept, he not only says that it is better to marry than to live in fornication, but that it is better to marry than to burn. So wise counsel there. Now, a lot of times why this isn't happening, there are some reasons. Problem three sleeping fathers. Fathers these days just oftentimes don't want to take responsibility with kids in their homes to see that they are married. And as their kids age on and as they struggle, they're not oftentimes involved. So let's speak then for a little bit about biblical authority and biblical responsibility of fathers. They go together. And the father of a Christian home has both the authority concerning his children and merits, and the responsibility to see to it that they're married if they should be. They don't have another calling. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles just for a moment to Numbers chapter 30. And what you'll see here is this teaches us that I have a mistake there. I had changed the grammar. Husbands, I should have it there. Fathers. Fathers can confirm or annul a daughter's vow to the Lord. I just want to read to you from this chapter. I was going to read to you the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go down to verse 
Okay, verse 3. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, this is a single woman, and her father hear her vow and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth not any of her vows, or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand, and the Lord shall forgive her, because her father disallowed her. So you see there that he has the authority to confirm or annul a vow to the Lord. Now, think about this. Marriage includes vows. So he certainly has the responsibility to oversee the marriages of his daughters. If he is not able to function in Scripture, oftentimes we see that a third party would come in and function in that circumstance. Maybe uh, the young person's in a faraway land, but either way we see someone else in Scripture would have that responsibility. Now, also, Exodus 22, verses 16 through 17, teaches us that it is the father who has the final authority either to give his daughter in marriage or to deny giving her in marriage. Let me read to you from Exodus. And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refused to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. So here's an immoral situation that took place. So the man was to take responsibility. He was to marry the girl. But if the father said no then that would not happen and he would have to pay money as a penalty. So here again we have just biblically establishing the authority of the father in these situations. You can even see this in the New Testament. You look at Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 and going on in the chapter, the relationship of a father to children is compared to us as Christians in our relationship to the law. But it talks about how the father has his children or his son under the authority of tutors, until the date set by the father, where the son would take the responsibility then as an heir. But the father had that authority. There's a jurisdictional authority that the father has in his own household. Paul also confirms this in his first letter to the Corinthians. So we're not just talking about the Old Testament here. Paul, obviously, as a believing Jew, affirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me read this for you. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. So you see, he has the authority to give her in marriage or to not give her in marriage. This is very, very important. Because in our own time, this is something that is, the responsibility is neglected by fathers and the authority of fathers is, it's really hated, even by many in the church. Just the concept of that. And that just shows how much secularism has twisted our minds in a lot of ways of thinking. I heard a sermon the other day in this pastor was giving example after example after example stories in his life where parents wanted their child to marry someone from another christian household and the parents of that household didn't want the marriage but these other parents would sneak and set up these scenarios to try to get these two people together so they could marry that's overstepping their jurisdictional boundaries they don't have that authority so that's very very important God the Father chose a bride for his son in Scripture. It was God who brought a bride to Adam. It is now fathers who take wives for their sons and who give their daughters in marriage. We see this in Scripture. Deuteronomy 7.3. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, that's with the pagans, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou Take unto thy son. And there's so many scriptures, I'm not going to quote them all now, but show it was the, the father's authority and responsibility to take care of this. So the father wasn't just there, hey, I can do whatever I want. I'm the authority. No, no, no. The, the authority was one that God gave him, not to serve himself, but to serve the Lord 
in seeing to it that faithful marriages took place. So he has both the authority and the responsibility. If you wouldn't take on that responsibility, such as let's say in our modern day, if fathers simply won't allow their children to marry in such ridiculous situations, then that should be taken to the elders of the church. And if they have to step in and do what the father won't do because he's neglected his responsibility, then that can be done. Listen to William Tyndale. And if you know he's the one who translated the Bible into English in the 1500s, chased for over a decade, martyred for translating the New Testament into English. The marriage also of the children pertaineth unto the elders, as thou mayest see in 1 Corinthians 7, quoted that earlier. And throughout all the scripture, by the authority of the said commandment, child, obey father and mother, which thing the heathen and Gentiles have ever kept, and to this day keep to the great shame and rebuke of us Christians. In other words, he's saying the pagans in the 1500s are doing this. We as Christians oftentimes are not. And he says, it's a shame. Calvin, again, says this. In saying that Hagar, now remember, Ishmael didn't have his father with him anymore, so he couldn't have, he wasn't having that authority or responsibility. So what happens? You have Hagar. Hagar took a wife for Ishmael. Moses has respect to civil order. Now notice Calvin is not going to say it's just because it's what the culture did at that time. Listen to what Calvin says. For since marriage forms a principal part of human life, it is right that in contracting it, children should be subject to their parents and should obey their counsel. This order, which nature, not culture, nature prescribes and dictates, was, as we see, observed by Ishmael, a wild man in the barbarism of the desert. For he was subject to his mother in marrying a wife. Whence we perceive. What a prodigious monster was the Pope when he dared to overthrow this sacred right of nature. You know, in his time, the Pope said you could have marriages without the consent of parents. So that's why he's rebuking the Pope for it. To this is also added the impundent boast of authorizing a wicked contempt of parents in honor of holy wedlock. So concerning fathers, we have to remember prayer with no action is not biblical. We shouldn't just say we're praying. We, we should pray about it, obviously, but it shouldn't just be we're praying. We're praying, we're praying. God expects us also to move to action. Now, a few more things before we finish. And uh, Peter's a little slow, so we'll just get there as I'm discussing this. A little bit of a shift in topic, but we're going to talk a little bit about marriage, covenant, and romance. Now, in our modern day, Dating and much courtship, oftentimes, sadly, is nothing more than psychological foreplay, even sometimes physical. And think about this for a moment, brethren. I mentioned at the beginning that people in the world will live immoral with multiple, multiple partners. But all of a sudden, when they're dating somebody, they're not supposed to do that. There's supposedly some kind of agreement, this going out agreement. And we know how ridiculous that is. But think about this. For Christians, is it right for somebody who is dating or in courtship to hold hands, to kiss, to put their arms around each other? Is that something that's really right biblically? Oftentimes what you see is, is you see young people, before they're married, when they're in courtship and dating, they're winning each other's hearts when they're actually not in a covenant relationship yet. And oftentimes those relationships break off and then they go and date somebody else or court somebody else. So they've given their heart to somebody in many areas when they don't even end up marrying that person and they marry somebody else. Holding hands, actually oftentimes they're holding hands with somebody else's future spouse or they're putting their arms around them. You see, those activities are not appropriate. They're only appropriate for two people who are in covenant together. And that's, that's it. I have here 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Paul says to young Timothy, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. 
the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. So in other words, if young people, if a young man, let's say, is not in, he's, he's with a young lady, they have this agreement, call it dating, courtship, whatever, they're holding hands, they're putting their arms around each other, so on and so forth, they're rubbing up on each other, and they're not in covenant, they're not treating each other like a brother or a sister. You see, the relationships in the church is to be relationships amongst the young people as brothers and sisters. So they're not to be treating each other in a romantic way if they're not in covenant. That's plain and simple. Think about it this way. What would you think if you saw a married man tomorrow, say in our church or in another church you know of, walking in a store, holding hands with somebody he's not married with, his wife's at home, let's say. Well, you'd say that's inappropriate. That's adultery. But why is it wrong? Well, he's holding hands with somebody he's not in covenant with. But you also say he's married, yes, but a lot of times young people who are doing these things when they're not married yet, they're just holding the hands of somebody that's going to be someone's future spouse. That's not their own. So in other words, romance should not be amongst people who are not covenanted together. And that's very important. Now, concerning betrothal, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 11.2. Oh, I skipped ahead of it already. Sorry about that, but I'll read it for you here. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, Paul writes, to the church of Corinth. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Currently is the church the bride of Christ. I think every Christian who studied their Bible for will say, yes, absolutely. But did you know the marriage actually has not taken place yet? I read the verse at the beginning. That takes place in the future, in Revelation chapter 19. Currently, we are in the betrothal period. We are covenanted with Christ, but the marriage supper has not yet occurred. What's interesting is our romance is to exhibit the relationship between Christ and the church. We see that in Scripture. That gives us a proper understanding of how our relationships are to grow. Christ is not dating the church. Christ is not flirting with the church. Christ is not just checking the church out. Christ will not change his mind and break off the relationship. Christ is covenanted with the church, you see. That relationship will not end. Betrothal, or as it is oftentimes translated in scripture, depending on the translation you have, espousal, it's intended to give us a romantic and effectual transition from singleness to the covenant of marriage. So there is romance, but that takes place between two people who are in covenant and betrothal is that transition period out of singleness, then finally into marriage. And it's appropriate because the two people are covenanted together. And that faithfully pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. The covenant relationship defines the transition. It demonstrates God's love in his heart. But sadly, you think about it, how few of us even know about this today, tells us that even in many of our churches, Christ's love God's love in his heart is not being oftentimes faithfully pictured. And think about a lot of the young people, how they are acting toward each other before they're even married, before they're even engaged. Is that accurately picturing Christ and the church who are covenanted together? Of course not. It is irrevocable, betrothal is. It's a period of, of sanctified separation and preparation for marriage, mainly preparing one's heart. It's a time when the bride and the groom are to draw each other's hearts and then release their own. It's the place for romance to begin and then it blooms and continues throughout life. So it serves as a protection for the young people and a proper, again, relationship that pictures Christ and his church. Now, if you recall Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, you can turn there in your Bibles just for a moment. I just want to show you this here between Joseph and Mary. And again, depending on the translation you have, it may say espoused or it may say betrothed, but this was the covenant that they were in. Look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So Mary and Joseph are in the betrothal period. The official marriage ceremony has not taken place yet where they would live together, and here she's pregnant. Verse 19 then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. So Joseph and Mary were not dating. And Joseph was, you know, not in a courtship with Mary. 
But here she's pregnant. So what does he have to do? He has to divorce her because betrothal could only be broken off by divorce. It wasn't just something that you could go in and out of because it was a covenant that they were in. Now, he was a just man, and because he was a just man, he wanted to put her away because he thought that she had been immoral. Verse 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So you notice Mary is currently the wife. They're currently in covenant, but the betrothal period is not yet finished. So again, there is an example of that in scripture. And that was the common practice of the time. Now, if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And I want to show you here in the law, three different circumstances concerning what would happen if there was unfaithfulness in the land. Three different circumstances, and please focus on this and look at the three different circumstances. We're going to look at verses 22 through 28, but first I'm going to read for you just verses 22 through 24. Here it says, If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed, uh, excuse me, I want to stop there. Okay, so you notice in verse 22, it says here very clearly that if two people are married and, or, and the wife goes and commits adultery, both she and the man that she committed adultery with were to be put to death. Okay, the covenant was broken. The death penalty was the result of that. Okay, now, if you would, look down at verse 28. Different situation. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. A man shall not take his father. Okay, so he goes on. So notice here a different situation. Here you have two young people who are not married, and they commit fornication. There's no death penalty crime. Adultery carried the death penalty crime. Fornication did not. Why? I mean, we as modern-day Americans, we might think, why is that the case? It's because we don't take covenant as seriously oftentimes as Scripture reveals to us that we should. I'm not saying us in here in particular, but oftentimes that's the case in general. You see, where there was a covenant... The death penalty was the punishment for the break of that covenant. In the second situation I just read to you, there was no covenant, so there was no death penalty crime, showing again how important Scripture teaches the covenant is. Now, if you would, look with me to verse number 23. Here's a third situation. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and he shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. So now you have a third circumstance. A young man and a young woman are betrothed. The complete marriage celebration has not taken place. They're not just two single people. They're betrothed. And what happened? Death penalty. Why again? Because there was a covenant, and that covenant was broken. So you see again how seriously scripture takes covenant. So a covenant is not to be lightly broken. There are major, uh, uh, what would you say, circumstances and fruits that you have to bear because of that. And at the same time, we must understand that romance outside of a covenant, biblically speaking, is simply not proper. It only must be between the two who are in covenant. Oftentimes we have it backwards uh, because we are in a feeling-based, heart-driven, individualistic society. And the truth is, though, it's not so much marry the one you love, but love the one you marry. It's been said, love is not a feeling you fall into, but a covenantal condition that you keep. Feelings are blessings from God, but those blessings flow from covenantal faithfulness. So this issue, this practice of betrothal, is in best keeping with Scripture, 
It's in best protecting of the young people to live purely, and it's an excellent biblical transition, really, I would say, the only one that is truly in keeping with Scripture, a transition from singleness to marriage. Let's just end with these last uh, two verses, brethren, and then we'll be finished tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Some of the most familiar verses to us in all the Bible. It says, All Scripture, Paul writes to Timothy, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You notice concerning all these things that are practical for us in the Christian life, Scripture contains everything we need to know. And so concerning these things, uh, let us always think, what does Scripture say? Oftentimes we have seen people compromise with scripture. We also see people abuse scripture. They get really excited about something, let's say, and they say, we want to just go by this. And then they abuse and they, they, they take it to an extreme that is not biblical at all. But that should, we need to always be balanced and say, what does scripture say? What are the examples that scripture gives to us? The good examples, the bad examples, what is the teaching? What is in God's law? And how much do we conform to that? And so that is just what I will leave us with tonight concerning this issue. So I hope this has been a blessing. I hope it's been informative. And I hope it's the case with anyone who watches it as well. Let us pray together. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would use the word in us. uh, That you would work in us through it. That you would apply it to us. That you would work in us by your spirit to be conformed to that image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to this, we just commit to you. We give you the glory. We pray that you would be honored. May that be the case whenever we meet together. May you be honored and may you feed us through the word that we may know how to walk as Christ walked and how to live as you call us to live. These things we pray tonight in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.